you know, if I could change and you could change, we could all change. Adrian! <laughs> Three, two, one. We're live. Hey, so I heard you got uh, engaged. <laughs> What's with that? I have a ring. Yeah. Prove it. Yeah, you got a ring. So I also heard that that's like the ugliest ring ever invented by man. This is true. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, welcome to the show, Angela, the fiance. Most of you have met her on the Tokyo show before. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. It's very exciting to be here. Mm, I'm very excited to actually get to talk to you and uh, because I've uh, spent a lot of time with you uh, over the last four months now. This is true. It's very true, yeah. Yeah. She recently moved in. If you guys have been tagging along on Facebook, then you know exactly what's going on in our lives. Um, but more so importantly, we have a couple topics that we're going to go over today. You want to talk about your life and your life story and also about what you do in life. What is your job? Like, could you explain it to me in layman's terms? Because I still don't understand it. Which one? Because I wear a few different hats. So yeah. you want to talk about the nonprofit or my mm, role as no. a CSR leader? CSR. What is CSR? Okay, so corporate social responsibility. It's yeah. been around, actually, it's been around since the dawn of time, but more popularized over the last 50 years. And then even more so in Japan over this last decade. Mm. Uh, so I work, so my day job is for an international company, and my title is CSR Senior Manager, and I manage the social and environmental impacts of the company. Okay. Yeah, it's it, the scope is, is <laughs> big, but yeah. basically on a market level, someone like me will be engaging with the business partners of the company to make sure they're aware of subjects like we're phasing out of plastics and we're moving into more recyclable materials in our product. Mm -hmm. have a, they're just better for the environment. Um, so I manage projects like that. I'll manage communications like that. But obviously, before you can even have a compelling external story, your employees need to be aware of what's going on. Right. So a big part of my job is educating employees on subjects like human rights in the supply chain, um, why we're moving into plastics, what percentage of recycled plastics is relevant for what kind of products, what are our competitors doing in this field. And then on the other side, the social side, we might have projects with underprivileged children teaching mm. sports or teaching language or art or fitness. So those kind of projects I'll manage and I'll report on. Okay, so that was like <laughs> the explanation for, for just a simple one. I want to see more, dive deeper into it um, because you said moving away from plastic, for example. So um, I remember we were in the car at one point and you said, no, Nick, you should get away from plastic in the gym, um, you know, get a water machine or something and then like have people use recycle um, bottles and stuff like that. And so I never really thought about like what the impact from like, because we're a small business. I didn't really think about how much we were actually doing until I started looking into it. Like how many bottles of plastic are we actually using um, on a monthly basis, for example. And it's mind boggling really to see it because we're, a gym with about 250 members or something like that, but it's like thousands of bottles and we're, it's costing us like a lot of money to throw these bottles out. And then the profit margin of that is ridiculous. Um, it's, it's like, why are we even doing this? We're just losing money on that project a lot of the time. And you're like, so I, I, f I feel that it was, um, even just a small business, but you work for a massive company. Hmm. Um, so but sustainability often starts the same conversation. We're talking, yeah. we're looking at waste. Yeah. So whether you're a big company or a small company, the strategy and the focus points will be the same. Mm. And, and I think that's interesting that, that those things are similar regardless of, so even as an individual, like yeah. when I decided like, oh, I want to reduce my waste, then you suddenly start, you start 
looking into what you actually produce. Yeah. And then you can start coming up with new decisions and new ways of living. And that's very exciting, I think. Yeah, no, it's 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 huge actually. Actually, I've gotten like even just like the the impact of what you do in your own life. Because I've been trying to stay completely away from um, the plastic bottles after, after I've met you, and um, I can tell the difference in what's like what's the trash going in and out of my house. Um, so just imagine like if everybody did it, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> what gets you excited about it? Well, I see like, your face lights up now. I have a friend now. who started a, a company last year called My Mizu, and they have exploded this year. They're working with huge companies. They're working with universities, and their whole mission is they created this really cool app, so you can track how many pet bottles you've not used, mm. and that will like calculate how much CO two you've reduced. Wow. So these topics are becoming more and more commonplace. Like in university now, everybody's studying them. And there's so many different reasons for why this is so like compelling now. So the companies that I work for, for example, of course, everybody wants to be a positive impact in their employees' lives and in the people in their supply chain. But also there's a lot of compelling business reasons for why companies are moving over in this direction. Mm. But it's exciting because it's change. It's right. growth, it's evolution, and that part of humanity and that part of society has always just fascinated and excited me. Wow. Tell us a little bit about how you got involved with it. Like, how did it start for you? Because you, you started in a, in a, as a teacher in, in, in here in, in, in Tokyo, right? Yes. So my, I started my career in, in early childhood education, mm. and I was teaching at an international kindergarten, And then in 2011, March, we had this huge, the triple disasters of Tohoku. Oh. Now, my brother was living in Sendai at that time. Mm. So I had a younger sibling that was directly impacted, him and his wife and their daughter. She was just three years old at the time. They evacuated. My sister used to live in Fukushima. So as the news started sharing the horrible you know, reality of what was going on, I was started to think about the people that I knew in these towns. Mm. And then I think the pivotal moment was when on the 14th of March, we got a call from my father saying, I've been hired as a driver for some journalists. I'm in this town called Minami Sandiku. And it's my first time talking with survivors and they have needs. They need t-shirts, mm. they need clothes, mm. they need hand cream. These are all really simple items that we were, we felt like, oh, we could probably get that together for them. So my fam my siblings, my parents, we launched a volunteer group. Mm. Well, I thought it was just going to be two, three weeks, and then I'd come back to Tokyo. But one thing led to another, and I ended up resigning um, from my position as a teacher, and I started a nonprofit. Well, that's now that we're there, we might as well dive into that story. So your nonprofit is called uh, Place to Grow. Mm. And um, like you just told us, like your dad was there on two days after, like, you know, in Minamisaniku, where everything was completely devastated. What is it that drives you to, because eventually I hear that you almost left your daughter and just like drove into this. I didn't leave my daughter, not leave her, but, <laughs> but I, mean, I did you, have to yeah. leave her for a, you know, a time. It's true. The first six months, I, I think I only saw her two or three times. So in the beginning, it was just seeing that much devastation firsthand. Like you just, it's incredible and it destroys a part of you. I've never seen Japan so crumpled, mm. like literally eviscerated. And then you hear the stories of what people are going through. And it comes down to, should I be helping them or should I not? Because if I was in a position where I didn't feel like I was actually bringing any value, I would have said, okay, great, I'm bowing out, I'm returning to my former life. Yeah. But I was in a position where if I chose to, I knew that I could make a huge impact. Yeah. So 
I felt like I should. And then the other aspect was just that I, for the first time in my life, I felt so confident because I was so good at it. Mm. Like coordinating, being under pressure, like busy, busy days, unloading trucks. Like it just all came so naturally to me that I think that also made me feel kind of excited about this work. So it was just a brand new passion. I just completely stumbled onto it. Mm. So I had the pleasure of going on a trip with you last year um, where we drove our bicycles from Hachinawa down the Michinoku Trail or like kind of leading it very close we to tried. the tried, We tried yeah. to get on the Michinoku Trail. But, but we, we ended up on the 45. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the whole way down, uh, all the way down to uh, Soma, Minami Soma, right? So that's like a 540 kilometer ride. Um, you did good. Yeah, I did pretty good. Thank you very much <laughs> for letting me tag along. Um, I remember we spoke about many things, like more specific things, like some of the memories you had, for example. I want you to take a little dive back into some of that stuff. Um, From the beginning years? Yeah, in the beginning. I mean, and also uh, leaving your daughter in Tokyo uh, Mm. must have been hard because she was very young at the time. Yeah, she was eight, I remember. So I have this weird memory sitting at Roppongi Hills Staya Starbucks. Uh. This must have been, I think this was the 14th of March. Yeah. And I was reading a newspaper and there was already a story about some survivor and how she, her daughter, junior high school daughter, was swept away from, they were both sitting in the car and they went to get out and the mom survived, but the daughter literally was just swept away, just pulled out. And I remember just, just empathizing so strongly with this sense of like what it would be like to lose a child or a sibling. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, my father called and we were like, okay, let's go. We get up there and um, it was amazing. Honestly, it was like the most intense three days and most productive, intense three days I've ever experienced where, you know, my mom was at home cooking. My younger sisters were watching the kids. I was out talking to companies, asking for supplies. My brother-in-law had set up the Facebook page. My sister-in-law was asking for donations and everything just worked like magic. And then before I know it, I find out that one of my old colleagues his name was Yosuke, um, and I used to work with him, uh, like one of my first arubaitos or part-time jobs in Aomori. He was in that town that we were going to, mm. and I was given a package of newspapers and letters from his grandmother. And they said, Ash, can you please take this to Minami Sandiku? Um, of course, I thought, that's such a ridiculous ask. How am I supposed to know where this person is? Mm. And then I sat down in the truck, and I looked down, and I suddenly remembered him so well. Mm. So on our first drop-off, you know, everything was really confusing and it actually didn't go as planned at all. But at one point, my father and I split away from the boys who were driving the trucks. And I went to go find this guy, Yosuke. And we asked around, like, where's Hotel Kanyo? Uh, and then one survivor told me, oh, yeah, you know, go go south, go down um, Route 45. And then another guy was like, oh, no, no, you can't get there. The bridge is broken. And the other guy's, no, 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 the Jiatai, the military fixed it yesterday. And so it's just sort of like it was this kind of environment. Mm. Um, and then we drove um, to find him. And I walked into this dark, cold, dead lobby, hotel mm. lobby. And I just like asked someone, I was like, hey, I'm looking for Yosuke. Mm. And they were like confused and looking at me like, who is this crazy gaijin in here? And what's going on? And then after a few minutes, Yosuke came out and I was like, Hey, man. I was like, hey, yeah, I brought you some letters. And he was just dumbfounded. He was just like staring at me like, what? Um, And then it was interesting. We left right away. And the next day I called him and I said, so we're thinking of coming back down, but we want to stay a few days. Yeah. Because we need to know what's happening in order to provide the right support. And the way he responded was just, yes. Like, yes, you guys can come. Please come. 
And that was sort of the beginning of what started to fascinate me about, okay, well, what is the value that a volunteer is bringing? Because I assumed, I mean, like I'm in those early days, I'm working alongside the military, the police, the search and rescue. Like these are really like hardcore, you know, um, structured elements of society that we all rely on in every culture. Yeah. And who, excuse my French, but who the fuck are we? <laughs> like, what are we doing here? And how are we trying to help? Yeah. But it turned out that, the biggest value that volunteers who are non-professional volunteers can bring is actually that showing up. Mm. You show up and you remind them that they're worth fighting for, that their struggle matters and that they're not alone. Mm. And it took me months to understand this, like, you know, um, experience after experience with these survivors where I was just like observing and analyzing and asking questions till I finally realized, oh yeah, there is a great deal of value in just inspiring someone else. Yeah. Uh, give us a specific example or, or, or episode that kind of stands out where you're like, whoa, I, I don't know what to do with this. Or there must have been something. I'm talking about failures, for example. Oh, yeah, so many. Um, because, I mean, you always say that you, you learn by failing forward. Mm. Like, you know, and, and instead of like, keep wallowing in what you've done before and or, or, but like falling forward, I think is a very good way of saying it. But what was one of the things that failed forward for you? One of the early experiences was when it came to like working with donors, for example. Mm. So we were distributing food and water mostly mm. like thousands of tons of food and water on a weekly basis. And then one, one time the shipment didn't arrive because mm. this is hilarious. So an overseas shipment of pet bottles, I think it was Coca-Cola. They arrived empty. No water what? in them. Yeah. So that, of course, impacted the whole schedule. And so at the end of the day, we were there with like, oh, there's no water this week. And that put us in an awkward position with the local, you know, communities. And my oh. colleague at the time, like, flipped out. And I got all panicky. And so I emailed um, our donors. And I was like, you know, you guys really need to get your shit together. <laughs> this can't happen. And I was really critical. And then this donor, bless his heart, he was such a great mentor, but he emailed me back just really calmly and, you know, explained how it's actually not sustainable if you only have one source yeah. of donations. Right, like if right. you're only relying on one company, for example. So that was the first time it ever occurred to me. Oh, shit. Yeah, we need to diversify. We need to be talking to multiple companies. We need to have backup plans. We should have contingency plans for these things. And so it was a huge learning from my part. But yeah. um yeah, and I also learned, okay, never email late at night after you've had a couple beers <laughs> on a stressful day when everything has gone to shit. Like, yeah. just make a note and do it the next morning. Yeah, I think I can, uh, <laughs> I've done that a couple of times myself. Um, but so anyway, um, you got started with the um, CSR and worked, how did, yeah, so we, we kind of got off track on that one. Yeah, so... I jumped from education to nonprofit. So yeah. social impact is what it's kind of called now. Yeah. And then I spent the next five years um, developing different projects that would help the larger communities in Minami Sandiku recover, yeah. like economic enhancement projects. We did a farming project, um, a lot of events. You mentioned the Santa Soul Train earlier. That's yeah. just a community like What is festival. the Santa Soul Train? It's a festival. It's like it's a, a three-day holiday festival where people come together, they dance, they drink, they eat. Their kids get on stage. There's a, uh, what do you call it? Like a raffle draw for the adults. They get presents. Santa comes. And then and it's connected. Like all these different communities are connected. Mm -hmm. So children are making cards for kids in other communities. Oh. And presents are being exchanged. 
and people are visiting usually before COVID. Obviously, volunteers would go there um, from all over the world. Yeah. So it was just this really inspiring three-day festival. And then and we you guys had, made that all yourself. What What's the naming? What's behind the naming of Santa Soul Train? So it was just called like the annual Christmas ball or, you know, something right. for many years. And then in 2014, we had a TV personality come and join us as the MC. Wow. And his signature like activity was this uh, a Soul Train dance. Oh. And, you know, I had been wanting to to find a way to make it more lively. And then this year, like hundreds of kids were standing dancing, like the whole banquet hall, like 500 families are here. Yeah. And everyone's in this big train going around. And then it stuck after that. It was oh, like okay. Santa Soul Train. And, you know, uh, my friend Stuarto, who was this celebrity, he just, he brought so much energy that we kind of changed the whole thing to just fit nice. <laughs> his image and his inspiration. Well, that's a successful story, right? That's like yeah. really cool. That's a really good one. Yeah. So we started all these different community rebuilding projects. And then in 2015, um, that was when I decided everything was changing. So mm. also the 311 disaster really kickstarted the scene of corporate social responsibility in Japan. So Japanese companies in particular, but also international companies were sending volunteers and like employee volunteers up there on a weekly basis. And right. they were doing a variety of different activities. So I started becoming a coordinator. Yeah. For that, a lot of different companies reached out, and I designed their, you know, their CSR activities for the year, and that was the first time I heard of this field. So then I got really interested in it, and at the same time, also universities were asking me, please come and talk. What is social impact? Because students were like, obviously, hundreds of Japanese salarymen have quit and now started social enterprises in Tohoku, and there was there was loads of grants out from the government too for entrepreneurs, and it was an interesting time. Um, but also, we were running out of donations. Oh, okay. We were running out of donors, like, badly. And I was just a bit overwhelmed. I think I was hitting burnout. Yeah. So I decided um, that I wanted to get, like, a, a more stable job. And right. my daughter, I think at this time, yeah, she was going into middle school. So I needed money to pay the bills. Yeah. Uh, and so then I... I Looked around and there were no positions available. So I decided, oh, I should probably start my own like consultancy company because I noticed it's not something we have in Japan. So I spent a year planning to like start and launch um, something that would be like my own consultancy firm. And then I went out with some of my girlfriends and she was in recruiting and she's like, oh, H&M is looking for a CSR manager. Oh, wow. And I was like, yes, <laughs> I could do that. But it was... um. It was really interesting because if I hadn't spent that whole year like researching the industry yeah. and what are corporates doing, what are the trends, I wouldn't have been ready for that mm. job. Nice. So it was kind of, I always say it's like, you know, luck is when preparedness meets opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. That was. We say that in sports too. Do you? Yeah. <laughs> that means you got to be very prepared to get lucky. Means yeah. you got to train a lot. So, yeah, tell us about H&M because you did some really cool things uh, while you were there. What was one of the things that you created? We rolled, well, I didn't launch, but I helped like grow and roll out their take back program. They called it Close the Loop. Mm. So it was a, uh, basically a service for consumers when they were finished with the clothes. Yeah. So instead of throwing them out in burnable trash, bring them back and you'll get a coupon and then we'll recycle them. Wow. So, That's really cool. Like I didn't, didn't even know this was a thing. Like, so any, you could do this at any H&M store. Yes. Does it have to be H&M clothes? Nope. It could be any anything. Clothes. It could even be towels. What, what sheets, do they use? Any sort of fabrics. What do they do them with them? So they work with a global recycling company. It's a German company called iCollect. And they have a global infrastructure where they take clothes. 
if it's still good, because a lot of clothes is still good, they sell it to the secondhand market. Mm. If it's slightly ripped, it can be downcycled or it could even be upcycled. What's a downcycle? So downcycling is when you well, might take like that T-shirt and yeah. it's so ripped up that I'll take it and I'll use it for something less valuable. So it might become a rag. Mm. Um, upcycling is when I take it and I turn it into something more valuable. Okay. So I might take that and let's say turn it into a quilt along with a lot of other fabric and then I can actually sell that for more. Mm. So And then there's downcycling and then there's a small percentage that just, you know, it's like, you're talking about like fibers. No. And so that actually gets like vacuum sucked and they they create like these um, bricks. Mm -hmm. They're called sludge. And that actually gets sold to the construction industry. What do they use them for? I don't know. Oh. <laughs> I think they go inside walls. So they're, they're basically like bricks, but made out of, you know, tiny fabrics of cotton that have been like squashed together. Or often what they sell this stuff to is the automobile industry and it gets used as insulation in the car door. Hi, hi. Yeah. Interesting. So there's this, um, it's just opened up for the whole portal of like a line of thought of questions and everything. It's like, so what happens then? And then what happens there? And, and then, but this, this, this program, I think is fantastic. I'm definitely going to check it out and see if it actually works. Go down to an H&M store and say, hey, take my clothes. <laughs> now you go to like any, you can go to Gap. They have one. Zara oh. has one. Um, because it's also now become a great marketing tool to show that you as a company are moving towards more sustainability. But when mm. we launched that at H&M, it was like the first brand to do so so i had managers going like i don't want to spend time teaching our staff to do this or it's like it's difficult to empty the boxes every day why are we doing this and so i actually mm. i visited every single h&m shop in japan wow one by one and had meetings with every store manager and their assistants and we set up assistants and we set up um like a whole structure for the employees to right. learn cool very cool and then so you ended up in adidas after that um, and I want to know about this, what do you call it? The, what does Adidas do for it? The social impact of what, how can you change a company's infrastructure there? Like Adidas? Yeah. Like what are the things that you've done there, for example? So I helped them do the exact same thing <laughs> with the exact same German recycling company. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, I remember it was so funny. And I met the, Christoph was the the leader here in, in APAC. And he suddenly is like, oh, so this is another way of growing sustainably. You just have the CSR managers move companies. <laughs> and so I set up their take back program. And Adidas this was very unique because it's the only one in Japan that took shoes. Oh, okay. And shoes are even more difficult to recycle than clothes. Yeah. So most shoes just have to be uh, burned, yeah. but glue is very toxic. So it's actually really, really bad for the environment. Um, I also help them run their social impact projects. We do um, support marathons. So like in the mm. city of Rikuzen Takadai in Iwate, mm -hmm. we are helping that town rebuild through sports. Okay. So we help sponsor, we send up athletes, you know, people. Very similar to when I described the Santa Soul Train. Like the impact is like showing up. But with Adidas, we're bringing the skill set of fitness, mm. uh, personal training, and then also helping them have an event mm. um, that people can come together on. Yeah. So working, I know I, I want to dig a little bit deeper into the uh, Adidas, like the shoe thing, because they have a shoe that is Biodegrade. What is that called? Biodegradable. Is that it? Biodegradable. That's the future. Yeah. yeah. What is? What does that mean? Well, that it will return back into natural substances. How? So there's no, <laughs> there's no there's no long term pollution to the soil, for example. Right. Oh, so it it all comes down to the molecular structure. 
Right. So there's this great um, story in Germany. This one woman, she was a scientist. I think she was still in university, actually. And she realized by restructuring the molecules of cow shit, she could create a cellulosic fiber type material, which could then be made into a T-shirt. Wow. That T-shirt would become biodegradable. So they're experimenting with all sorts of products, like vegan leather is sourced from grape peels. Huh. A really good success story on this was orange fiber. Yeah. And um, these were women in Italy, or I think it was Spain, and they looked at the huge orange juice industry waste, which is all these orange peels. Right. And they figured out how to create fiber from oranges, huh. from orange peels. So in a in a like a circular economy, which is what we're talking about, let's say there's the orange juice industry, their waste can be sold to another industry that then extracts what they need from it. Right. So in this case, the orange fiber takes the fiber the the pulp, yeah. turns it into fiber, and then that can be donated, for example, to a fragrance industry that is going to use it for orange, you know, whatever perfumes yeah. or this, yeah. something like that. And that's kind of the ecosystems that we're trying to build within the corporate circle or just within the industries. Right. Well, the first thing that comes to mind is that, holy shit. <laughs> so it started with a cow shit. <laughs> wow. And so this shoe that then, then they come out with, so eventually they, wow, that's mind boggling. The one that, that's on the market now that's really popular is the Parley shoe, which is made from recycled ocean plastic. Yeah, tell me a little bit about this ocean plastic. Because someone told me that they found plastic on Him Himalaya or, or something like that, like all over, like the Antarctic and stuff. They found microplastics. Microplastics. In snow, in hot, yeah, in mountain places and stuff. So the, bi the big problem right now is that most of the plastics don't uh, just fall apart and turn back into nothing, right? They're toxic. They turn into these tiny, tiny pieces of plastic that fish eat, then we eat. Mm. And then it just, it, you know, there's this negative circle there, and we don't know the ramifications of what it means to have toxic substances in our bodies long term. Right. And that's the drive to move away. The other drive is that there's just so much pollution. Right. So much pollution. And, you know, let's go back a few thousand years. It was the air and the sea that nobody really owned, right? Right. We, we made our little life borders, and we were kind of protecting our own spaces. But we just were like, we could forever throw garbage into the sea or into the air who cares yeah. and it's only been these last like 50 years that we've seen the impact of that and so it's really just to, to stop the waste that's just so prevalent in our oceans right because also if the oceans die we all die yeah well they say they're the lungs of the world right <laughs> yeah so um fitness i mean you're working for a sports company and and you look very fit i mean what is fitness for you that's really like vague question. Yeah, what I know. Is fitness no, I, okay, well, no, okay, so yeah, let's talk about that a little it bit. Is, what defines fitness for you? If you had to think, give it three pillars, what would it be for you? Oh. Like, yeah, because everyone's different. So being active, I mm -hmm. suppose, like the active lifestyle, diet, nutrition, you know, mm -hmm. whatever you're eating. And then I think it's uh, relationships. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah. How's that? Well, because. So when I was a kid, my dad used to always say, was it like eat right, sleep right, and exercise right? Yeah. And then you, you, know, you have the body. But I didn't really know much about sleep. Now I know a lot more about that and I see how you know important it is. But like when, when I was starting the nonprofit, yeah. we didn't, like we had really long days and it was kind of becomes like this, like, oh, I'm so tough. I can, you know, I can survive on three hours of sleep or five hours of sleep. And then also like as a single parent, I had the same experience where I didn't have a lot of, you know, downtime. Mm. 
So I don't think I, I, I really thought about sleep much when it comes to fitness, but I definitely was aware of like, you know, eating right and then exercising right. And, and those were kind of like my two, yeah. two things. And then the relationships come in because I think people help us, they keep us accountable or they keep us motivated. Yeah. Interesting. I, so I personally, I, I obviously I do CrossFit now, but you know, I was fighting before. And for me, fitness was the, the, the part of the training that was, you know, defined as, as what I look at fitness is what the CrossFit part of was. That was specifically done so that I could fight better, but it wasn't something I enjoyed. It wasn't until many years later that I realized that actually just working out could be really cool and fun. And can, and so for me, it has to be sustainable for one thing. Mm. And it has to be, um, has to be fun. And then, uh, yeah, obviously there's that whole impact of, of, of being in an environment where other people are also working out. Now I do a lot, or like I like the social fitness scene. Like it's yeah. fun, right? And I'm yeah. going there also, of course, to work out, but I'm also, I want to catch up with so-and-so. So on Wednesdays, I have a, a bunch of friends that we just get together in the park and work out. Yeah. But, you know, when I was a kid, because growing up in Japan, um, I look very different from Japanese women. So I always had a really negative body image. Mm -hmm. And I always thought fitness was just to be, you know, to get the bikini body. Mm -hmm. And you want to be skinny and you want to look good in a bikini. Or, you know, like when I was a teenager, like uh, Janet Jackson was popular. So everyone mm -hmm. wanted abs and it was the girl who could like wear the crop crop top and the, the baggy jeans. Oh, yeah. And I was always really jealous of the girls who were super skinny. But then more recently, I started to realize that you want to stay fit so that you can enjoy life as long as possible. Yeah. So my whole like image of it completely changed yeah. over the last couple of years. And also I realized I love endurance races. So I, I discovered Spartan racing. Oh, here we go. Here we go. Yeah, I was going to talk about the Spartan races. And also, uh, yeah, tell us about the Spartan races. How did you that come about? Well, in 2004, 14, mm. I found a Craigslist ad. Yeah. Someone was selling their Tokyo Marathon ticket. Uh -huh. And I was like, oh, I've always wanted to do this. And, you know, my daughter had, was just old enough that I could have a little bit more free time. Yeah. So I bought it. And then I wasn't sure if it was going to be a scam. So yeah. I just kind of sat around over the holidays. And then January comes and I get a text from this lady going, okay, I picked up my ticket. I'll meet you at Mita Station. And I was like, shit, I've never run before <laughs> in my life. Wow. For more than, I would go for like a 20-minute jog. Yeah, well, that's pretty so, good. So I joined a gym and I started running on the treadmill and I got up to 10 kilometers. Mm. So I could run 10 kilometers. And then I did the Tokyo Marathon. And wow. I was like, wow, this is amazing. And then I did an ultra marathon. And yeah. then with the charity fundraising, we were doing these long distance, like three day cycle rides. So mm -hmm. I was like, okay, I've done running, I've done cycling. I should totally do a triathlon. Yeah. Can but you swim? Not so well. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> also, it's, I don't know, the gyms here in Japan, like the timing just didn't match up with me. So I kept postponing it and postponing it. Yeah. And then the Spartan race came to town and I went with my friend uh, there's like three or four of us and yeah. there's a bunch of people that I knew there. And, and I just was like, oh, this is it. This is oh, it. Oh, this is it. I'm <laughs> frolicking around. I'm just climbing shit. There's mud everywhere. This is the kind of fitness I like. Um, so, yeah, then I was hooked. What, so tell us uh, a little bit about the Spartan race. I mean, what's cool about it? I mean, what are the obstacles you like? What are the obstacles you don't like? Because you went all in, like, and you went elite and, like, com that's competitive Spartan racing. That's not just, like, going for a weekend warrior trip. 
<laughs> yeah, that's true. 20, 2018 was a good year. I really challenged myself. So there's two components to this. One was there's all these different obstacles that you get to test your level at. Yeah. Like, where are you? So in a way, it's like you really, it's a, a strange space to get to know your body better. Mm. So that mind-body connection, it was just the perfect avenue for that. And then the second thing was just that they've got these, a lot of like climbing and, and jumping over yep. obstacles. Yep. I mean, I just feel free and, and like a monkey <laughs> on a playground. And so I think that element just really connected with how I like to. All right. Tell us the uh, obstacle you like the best and the, the worst. Because I've done a couple of Spartan races. I actually saw you at a Spartan race once. That was the one I won. Oh, nice. <laughs> I was the only reason I was hanging around was because I had to wait for the, you know, the award ceremony. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what was your question? <laughs> Tell us the the worst and best obstacle on the on a course. The worst one is the javelin throw for sure because like yeah. how are you supposed to practice that in well, Tokyo? Well, you, you get can't... a broomstick and you go to the park and you, yeah. you toss it around, I guess. So that's why I, I don't like that one because. I've, but one time I got it. Oh, you've gotten it, I've yeah. Gotten it. I've gotten it also. I'll tell you a story. Actually, my story from the Spartan race was like exactly about the javelin throw, right? I didn't finish. Oh, I know, I know. You're not finished, but I'll jump in on it anyway because <laughs> you said it. It just comes natural then. Um, no, so, you know, I was running with a bunch of other guys, the three of us. We'd made a team of 40s, 50s, and 60s. So mm. it was three of us uh, running together. And then so we get to the, the javelin throw and it's all jam-packed because people are like really like lining up and they really want to get that javelin to stick over there. No one's getting it, right? So it takes us, I don't know, five, maybe 10 minutes while we're waiting in line to, for it's our turn, right? And then I got the javelin in my hand and I just jammed it and it's stuck in the middle of that box over there. And then the whole crowd just went, yeah! <laughs> It was the best oh, feeling Oh, yeah, yeah. I was going to say, you would have felt like a rock star yeah. for sure. Like, so, so you get to like jog away from it because and everyone else is doing burpees. <laughs> like, see ya, boys. <laughs> anyway, you weren't finished. Yeah. The, my favorite, I think, is the rope. But that's because the very first race I did, I couldn't make it to the top. Oh. And it, I was like, tried and I tried until my arms were just like, you know, dead weight. And I was like, ah. Oh. It really got to me. I don't know why. I just was like, oh, my God, I can't get this. I need to get this. So <laughs> then I went and I trained and I practiced. And then I went back three months later and I got it. Nice. So that like these tiny steps of growth, there's always something that you can be improving on. So I think Spartan Race does that very well. Yeah. Um, yeah. They've got a good marketing team. They know how to like, you know, I'm paying hundreds of dollars to go and get dirty. Yeah. Keep rolling the mud. <laughs> do burpees. <laughs> yeah. Do burpees. <laughs> They're great. So Joe Decina uh, is the uh, the founder of the of the Spartan Race. Yeah. And so when they were going to come to Japan to set up shop, he came to my box and, and, and joined for classes every morning. And we have a very good uh, relationship with him. He's a really cool guy. Yeah, Completely I met him on the, first, the first race. Completely nuts. You know, he decided one time to do a uh, 10,000 burpees uh, over New Year's. And so, as one does, is that's what you should do every New Year, Clearly. right? And do ten thousand burpees, like, and it doesn't sound okay. Ten thousand sounds well. That's a big number. No, no, it's insane. Okay, it's insane because uh, I think he got to four thousand or six thousand or something like that, and then his like he was, and it took like twelve or fourteen hours. Like he's just doing burpees, like you're pretty much like nonstop. I mean, he would stop for, you know, to that drink something. That doesn't sound very sustainable. It's not sustainable at all. And he said it was the worst thing he'd ever done. But he, he knew that he because he had given himself the challenge that he had to finish them. So I think he was like, his, there was something wrong with his knees or something. He smashed himself completely on those burpees, right? And um, so he rested for about a month or something like that. And then he went back and he finished the last 4,000, I think it was. Wow, that's hardcore. Yeah, he is nuts. 
You know, he sent me a, a text one day. He goes, uh, I started working, uh, walking uh, four miles a day with a 20 kilo kettlebell. Uh, are you in? And I'm like, what? Uh, can it be like a power vest or something? He's like, no, it's got to be a, be a bell. And I was like, yeah, okay, I'll do that, man. And I had no idea what, why, why we were doing this, but we checked in daily, you know, how's it going? It's like, yeah, I got my four miles in today. I've got a pattern now, you know, at the time it was rainy season. So it was really raining hard. So I, so I measured the floor in my gym um, of how many times it would get me to four miles. Right. And it was literally 360 laps uh, back wow. and forth on the gym floor to get to four miles. And so I got that down because the next three, four days, it was just slush did, raining down. Did your clients think you'd like gone insane oh, yeah. for a week or oh, something? Oh, yeah. I was, uh, I was getting <laughs> like, a lot oh, yeah, of funny there. emails. There he is going back and forth. Yeah. I got it down to that. I started, it took like an hour and a half because you're walking with the kettlebell. And so you're losing your grip strength and it's mm -hmm. getting hard. So you, and you switch over and, and then so, but then after a while, you, you know that you could, you could one lap and then just switch it every lap or half lap or whatever. And then you, I could keep going and it took me like an hour, like an hour and five minutes, something like that. So overall, was it good? You enjoyed it? No. So that went on for about three weeks. And think about this because you're offset the whole time, right? Your, your, your knees are getting like, squashed like wrongly mm. your hips are getting squashed wrongly i got two replaced hips so i mean everything really didn't it was not the the right thing to do is what i'm trying to say it was very <laughs> stupid my knees blew out um and i literally had water retention in the knees for like for the next year oh yeah i ended well, up fail doing forward yeah, PRP injections and getting over that and, and dealing with injuries and stuff like that. But yeah, mm. the, the challenge was fun. I mean, it was, it was it was just something stupid, you know. It's like something that doesn't make sense at all. But he's just that kind of guy. Well, then going back to your earlier question about what is fitness, yeah. it's, it's maybe it's also that challenge. You know, fitness is a great place, probably the only place I've ever really experienced that kind of self-challenge. Yeah. And it does take you places. So it definitely, I feel like now it's just, it's it's really what my dad said, eat right, sleep right. And exercise, right? It has to be part of your everyday life. Yeah. And before, when I was like too poor to go to the gym, um, I always said, well, I, I live with a bicycle. Like I, I don't use public transportation, so I'm always cycling. So that that should be enough. It yeah. should be good. But when I think about it, yeah, I think my father, you know, always made sure that we were running around or doing something, doing some kind of exercise. <clears throat> and so that just kind of stuck mm. with me and with my siblings. Like we're all very active and we really enjoy yeah. sport and Snowboarding, snowboarding in the winter, soccer. water skiing in the summer, everything. Yeah. Um, so we, you kind of briefly went there for a, a little bit back um, when you said you also did an ultra marathon. I want to hear about this ultra. What? How long is it? And how excruciating is it? And tell us some stories there. It was excruciating because of the sun. Oh. So it was out in Nagano, I think, Nobayama Marathon, and a beautiful little sleepy village. <clears throat> I think there's one event like the entire economy of that town yeah. here. Um, and so we got there the night before and then woke up around four. Mm -hmm. I think it was like three or four. So you have breakfast at five. You're there by 5.30 or six. And then they start the, the like letting people go because they, they let them run in waves. Yeah. And then you just, it's beautiful. It's quiet. The sun's just rising. It's freezing cold. And then you're going up mountains, down mountains. And it's, it's beautiful for the first 50 kilometers. 50 kilometers. How long thinking, is this thing? So I did the 71K. Wow. It goes up to 100 kilometers. Yeah. But I remember thinking, wow, I finished the, the marathon distance so much faster than I did my first marathon. Yeah. And, and I didn't even realize where the time had gone. 
Yeah. Um, and that's because of the variety of the scenery. Wow. So you're just like, wow, this is beautiful. And then the sun came out and it was just like, I got completely burned. Oh. Um, and then, of course, exhaustion is setting in. So the last 20K, it was just like, it was excruciating. And it was like every 5K, they have a water station. Mm. And I could feel it. Like I could feel my body just completely being drained of energy. And then I would eat the sour plums and drink like two cups of water and then phew, <laughs> sodium's wow. back yeah, yeah. and then it was just a matter of it was just mentally right just like you just don't give up just keep walking just keep going and don't walk because then it's just so hard to start running again yeah it took me nine and a half hours nine and a half hours solid running <sighs> or limping but so i mean you must did you i mean you can't run for nine hours no one can run for nine hours you must have walked sometimes what how did you deal with that we had one break where I remember we actually sat down and like munched on power bars and stuff. But then in the end, we were just sort of like, like I was hold, we were holding hands and we were just kind of like, you know, just keep running, just keep running. Wow. And then I remember crossing that finish line and being like, oh my God, I've never felt so happy. Like <laughs> just, oh, and, it, and it ends at this beautiful hot spring. Yeah. Well, uh, but I couldn't walk for like four days afterwards. <laughs> Like, so I was so sore, and I had to travel. It was this was when I was at H and M, and so I had yeah. to take a plane to Sapporo the next day. It was oh, horrible. Wow. That's that's crazy. So I'm not very good at long endurance stuff. Like not like that anyway. I like the endurance stuff. It's fun because you go on this journey. The hilarious thing was we stopped at a water station, and this guy who's dressed like Spider Man pulls out an accordion and just starts playing music for everyone at the water stop. Wow. And and blind runners. That was the first time I've actually seen yeah, yeah. you know them running the in, and right. I was I was yeah. just like, wow. I've and there seen was a, a Japanese woman actually. running in old Japanese like geta. Mm -hmm. Not not the ones with the, the Oh no way. The heels, but the straw ones. Yeah. Why would she uh, and, do and that? A, and a Japanese like old fashioned farming hat. I don't know. There were people like her all feet must have been types. completely smashed up from that. I wonder. Yeah, actually, now that you said straw hat, I just remembered this. Uh, <laughs> this Joe's this Spartan guy, Joe. Um, he says, uh, "We're going to the mountains, Nick. Here's a list of things you need to bring." And so I bought all this stuff on a list: a backpack and like everything, you know, to go like you know proper hiking stuff, right? And then he he meets up with all of us. He says, "Be in Shibuya, you know, at Hachiko on what was it Friday night?" At eight, uh, say eight, eighteen hundred hours, you know. So, and it's, that's all I knew. And then when we get these, he goes, and then there's people with bring backpacks and stuff from all over the world. We all look at each other. Hey, how you doing? Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. You know, it's like what's going on. It's like no one knows what's going on. They have this secret group on Facebook that you can only get invited to if if you like know someone that knows someone, right? And so there's a couple thousand of these guys, these nuts guys, right? And women, by the way. So there was a couple of women, and there was most of them were guys. And um, Joe shows up. He says, oh, you guys are so good. You're champions. I've already brought you your medals. Come over here. And so we walk over to the side of where the police box is, and there's like a line of kettlebells, 20-kilo kettlebells. This is what he had been practicing for, by the way, with that thing. And then the just started there. And so it's this death march race. I have no idea what it was planned for. So we, we ended up walking all the way through Tokyo uh, in the middle of the night and um, uh, got to the Tokyo station. Uh, we had breakfast in Skiji at the fish market and then we go uh, to Tokyo State, walk to Tokyo station and we're carrying these kettlebells and our backpacks. I had actually the camera guys, uh, two big bags instead of a kettlebell. It was just nuts. And then it just, we got down to Kyoto on the first train and then uh, we get to this mountain and said, yep, yeah, sorry guys, the gondola is broken. Now we're going to have to walk the mountain. 
And so we walk over this mountain and it, and it gets dark at around five or something like that. We were walking and sweating. It was completely nuts because to get up the, the mountain was like the steepest climb I've ever done in my life. And um, he didn't carry anything. He had his bell. No backpack, nothing. He'd be like going around to people. Hey, can I have a sip of your drink? Oh, can I get some of your power bar? Can I? He didn't do anything. <laughs> I was just like, what the hell's going on here? And anyway, so I had this backpack and I had like the kettlebell and it's like we're struggling to get up this mountain. And then I look up and he's like, Nick, give me your bell. And I just look up and just, he comes walking down shirtless. I'm like, it's freezing, right? It's like freezing there. And he's like, don't worry, man, take your shirt off. You'll, you'll, you'll enjoy it better. And I was like, this guy is nuts, nuts, nuts. And so long story short is that we went to this mountain because it's where these, um, these marathon uh, monks were living. And so there's a monastery there. And, the, and these, these monks, they apparently walk like a marathon uh, every day. So they go around the mountain and they come back and then they eat and sleep and they repeat and they just what they do. They, that's how they live their lives. Um, so we were doing, we we're falling in the, in the footsteps of these monks. But yeah, uh, long distance insurance, uh, long distance stuff is what we were really talking about. And I remember doing that thing that going up the mountain was the worst thing I've ever done. And then you get up to the top of the mountain and then they pull this drill charge and shit on you. And they go, okay, the mission is you guys run up that hill and come back down. And everyone's just going, no way. And then it's like, okay, it's burpee times. And then it's like, you have your backpack on. It's like, we've got to do burpees with the backpack. Down. And everyone's down on the floor. Up. Down. Up. And I'm like, oh, what did I sign up for? But it gets really dark. It gets really cold. And we've walked for, I don't know, I'd say about... 30, 40 kilometers in mountain terrain, probably at this point. And um, suddenly I dawned on me because my feet were so heavy. My legs were killing me. The kettlebell, you know, at this point, I didn't give a shit. I just put the kettlebell in my backpack because I'm not fucking carrying that in my hand anymore. And so I got this second wind. I was like, I woke up from this, like, this, this state of mind that is really hard to describe. But I was like, I'm okay with this. Mentally, I'm actually okay with this. So... I, I don't know. Maybe it's something you feel. You, there's this euphoric yeah, moment you where you to get a that point where you hit. Like so, for me, it always happens, and it's just this resistance, physically and mentally, where you're like, "What am I doing here? I don't like this. this is uncomfortable." Mm. And then you go past that, and suddenly you're somewhere else. And I think it's exactly what you described, where you're you realize that there's I don't know. There's a calmness. I think there's a mental calmness that comes with endurance exercises that yeah. I find uh, wonderful. He said that his mission to do, and they called him what? The Agogi. Mm. So he called him the Agogi. And the Agogi is taken from the actual Spartans. Which that's what they do. Or that's the time of period that is their training before they become real warriors. Mm -hmm. So he's got some cool things, you know, this whole Spartan thing. I like it. He did good with the branding on that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. He was also a former Wall Street, so he knows his stuff. Although I have to say, Nuts. when it comes to the Spartan race, the one thing I didn't like was, so in the open it's all men and women mixed so it's fine so there's like 200 people and you're like aru 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 and it's great the elite men also fine because there's a couple hundred and so there's like some energy there's like eight of us elite women and so it's like aru aru it's just like oh god please don't make me do this and everyone's like all pumped up there and i'm just like oh my god this is yeah but it was really fun yeah that, well, there's one cool thing about it though is like because if you are in the elite category then you uh, you get to run uh, first thing in the morning. Yes. And so the obstacles are not all smashed and the slushed up or anything. The men first, though. Yeah. I always wondered about that. I was like, why? 
why don't they let the ladies run first? Because I want to run on a clean course. But then it feels really good when you catch up to the slow men. Yeah. Oh. You're, you're the first woman to overtake the guys. You're just kind of like, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's cool. <laughs> it's kind of that's funny. really cool. Um, I So the obstacles, like, for example, like if I had to say some of them, the, the ones that I like, I mean, for... For me, the, the rope climb is easy because we do it in CrossFit all the time anyway. So I was like, I wasn't really impressed by that. But then you get to this this bucket, right? There's this bucket mm. carry where you got to put it full of gravel and you got to walk around like for a long period of time. Um, and people put the bucket down and they try and cheat and like to like, throw some of the gravel out. There's all these, like the human nature really comes out when it, when it, get, when, when it gets tough like that. And I kind of find that funny, but I just picked up that bucket and it's just never put it down. Yeah. Me and neither. I was like, boom, done. And then just start running. I really liked the bucket because you're exhausted um, in sort of the, you know, the upper body from the monkey bars and all these other things. And then when you do that bucket, you suddenly you have to use your core. So I noticed that if you change your breathing style, you just, you can, you can just um, like sail right through that one. And so yeah. I like the variety of the different exercises. And I loved learning about breathing. Yeah. Because on the long one that I did, I suddenly realized if I do a similar breath to Lamaze. Yeah. Like when you when you practice to have a kid, they teach you how to do this breathing that's uh -huh. calming. Oh yeah. And suddenly you don't go through that like tired, energetic, tired, energetic that I saw everybody else going. You just keep this really stable pace if you focus on your breathing and you have an actual like pattern to it. Yeah, yeah. It was like a little trick that I, I kind of just discovered on the slopes. Yeah. I well, on the bucket, it was just like it was it was grip. It's like if you if you get the right grip on it. You just kind of sit back a little bit and then just like do these like I don't know, like Smurf steps or something. That's <laughs> what <laughs> so it felt like anyway. I was just keep walking. I just, I just start taking people over and stuff, and it's like you see people that put in the bucket down. It's like nah. I liked the monkey bars because those were also ones that I couldn't do at first. Yeah, and then I had to actually work on upper body strength and practice and practice, oh. and then you can when you when you can do them. Yeah. Uh, it just feels great. So two kind of monkey bars. There's one with the flat, the flat bars, and then there's that one, one with the rings. Forever. I was, yeah. I was convinced that it was a mistake. <laughs> I was like, these are too far apart. Yeah, no, they are for too far a female apart. body. Yeah. But then they're like, well, women can do them. I mean, obviously, I've seen the the yeah. winners do yeah. it. So it took me, I think, like a year and a half to finally get those ones. Nice. Actually, that takes some serious dedication to training for that. Yeah, well, that's why it's fun because I'm yeah. with friends, right? So yeah. I'm always we're all showing up, and then we go to the races together, and yeah. and then um, cool. we just enjoy it. Cool. I'm um, gonna go a little bit off topic, like we're gonna change the direction of the, of the talk a little bit. But um, you raised your daughter uh, pretty much by yourself, um, and you were never married. Um, I want to ask you how that has impacted you, and. There's some of the struggles you've had with that and also some of the upsides to it. Like, what's the coolest thing about that, for example? She's mine. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a little bit of pride in that. Yeah. It was difficult because she wasn't, also wasn't planned, right? That's why I didn't get married. Yeah. Um, but let's see, what did I struggle with? Everything. Uh, mostly guilt. You know, I wasn't, I was very lucky that I had siblings. Mm. nearby and they really help so I, I don't think like I raised her by myself because without that community I, I don't know what I would have done but it was difficult and then I didn't have space because she came to work with me when she was really little because I was in education so it was just her and I all day long and then when I would want to let's say go out with my friends or go out dancing I used to really love going out <laughs> I love parties right and you know 
people would just look at me with that condescension of like, you really shouldn't be doing this. You should be at home enjoying flashcards with your child all day long. And I'm like, well, what if I don't like doing that? Like, I honestly don't like sitting around just reading storybooks. Yeah. So I had a lot of guilt around being a parent. And I think that made it difficult because then I was sort of, um, I would try to overcompensate. And so I was maybe a little bit less tough on her in the early days. So she was a total brat. <laughs> in the beginning. <laughs> Even my brother would be like, Edge, get your shit together. <laughs> so but then, you know, we we are really close now. And so yeah, she just turned eighteen, so she'll be nineteen this year. Wow. Yeah. She's a great kid. <laughs> yeah, she's very uh how do we say in English? The she's very thoughtful, right? And yeah. she's got great, she's got both like the Japanese traits of like attention to detail and they're kind of like they want to be perfect with everything. But then I think I think she's gonna come into her like Latin side a little bit later. Okay. I think so. Um and then she definitely has like when we go back to visit the US, I know that she feels connected there. And she's definitely got adventurous side because yeah. I used to take her hiking. Like we used to go hiking every weekend. She would ice skate, she rollerblade, she played basketball, she swam, swam. She started walking at eight months. Wow. So she was always just like all over the place. It was exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> well, look at where she came from. So, I mean, <laughs> no I wonder why. Yeah. yeah. But I did want, I was conscious about the things that I, I really wanted her to have certain attributes or mindsets. Like I didn't want her to be too shy to not speak up for herself. Yeah. And there was a lot of things that like I had issues with as a child that I was conscious about. How do I mitigate those for her? How do I make sure that she doesn't like have those same traits and how do I not pass those on? Mm. I think you did a fantastic job though. Thank you. You know, um, the Tokyo Talks is also about, you know, experiencing uh, cool things and meeting new people, obviously. Um, I think your story is fantastic. Um, but uh, I want to ask you if there's anything, because you've pretty much been here all your life. And you also speak Japanese, which makes you uniquely bicultural and also bilingual, which I find fascinating. Because uh, we could be doing this in Japanese. It would be a different story. It would be a different conversation. <laughs> it would be completely different. Yeah, which is kind of funny. But, I mean, is there something about Japan, even after all this, even if growing up here, that you just don't understand about it? Is there, like, something that, that just, like, goes, okay, this is something I would like, you know, to change in this country? Yeah, I don't like how they... It's like it has to be perfect or it's nothing. And there's so many different ways that this is integrated into their society and because it's a shame-based society. Right? Mm. So, like, I would really love if they could loosen up a little bit around that. Like, just be a little bit more okay with taking risks. Like, if it, from a business sense, right? Yeah. So many times in the, in the business world, I hear from Japanese colleagues, like, as we're building a roadmap, let's say for a project, mm. they don't want to come out and have an audacious goal. So it's, everything's like slow moving mm. and there's a lot of like waiting around for people to all align. And then two years later, it's like, oh, well, it's going to be difficult. And that kind of, um, that pace, I just, it just goes against like my style, which is far more like, let's just do it. Yeah. So that's difficult for me to, um, to not live with, but like, I, I just will never understand that. Right. And I'm like, guys, it's okay. You can make mistakes, <laughs> you can, you know, recover from them and it's okay. So, but I, I'm hope I, I do hope that that will change. Yeah, it just seems like when you get the more the bigger the group of people that gets together, the less like decision making gets yeah. done. <laughs> I mean, like they really need some strong leadership sometimes. That's what I feel like anyway. Mm. Yeah. Well, we're kind of getting to the end of the talk here. Is there anything else that you want to talk about? I do. Okay, I have a question. Yeah. 
So what drives you to launch this podcast and this the the influencer part of your brand? Yeah. So why do you like doing this podcast? Well, I, I, well, it's just started, right? So um, mm-hmm. I'm not quite sure where it's going to take us. We are we already lined up some really cool guests. I was hoping that maybe you could introduce us to, to the next guest. Oh, yeah. Okay, I could come up with a couple names. Yeah, I think maybe Stuart O would be good to have on the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you can give him a call. Yeah, that'd be cool. Um, also, we have uh, Konishiki coming on the show. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah. He came up for a Santa Soul Train one year. Oh, wow. Yeah, he was oh, our even Santa. cooler. Nice. He is one hilarious gentleman. That's all I can say. But his stories about martial arts and stuff like that would be uh, fantastic to hear because his like, you know, sumo version of what I've done kind of in the karate mm. world. Um, but yeah, why am I doing this? Because because um, I think that there's a market for Tokyo Talks, for one thing, as doing a podcast. And also I want to inspire people. And get inspired by, like, listening to your stories, for example. I'm very inspired. Like, I got it's so inspired that I'm changing the infrastructure of my gym to get rid of plastic bottles, for example. And I think that if if you can have that kind of impact on someone like me, then there's got to be more people out there that watch the show and mm. listen to the stories and they also get inspired. And then I think it's about global community somehow. You know, if, if we can make a small change. and Like Rocky said it, you know, if I could change and you could change, we can all change. Adrian! <laughs> 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 but yeah, I, I I think that there's, you know, and there's stories out there that could really are unique to people who are bilingual and bicultural for sure. Mm. Um, and it's definitely something. And it, it goes, again, comes back to relationships, you know, and all the kind of people that I've been with until I met you. It was it was just Japanese and, and I was happy and content with that. But I was also. also I met relationships, yeah. like all types of relationships, huh. you know, like the relationships you have in your life. Well, yeah. yeah, even romantic ones, but even it's your relationship with your brother that will impact the way you do fitness or yeah. your father, for example, because they'll teach you things. And so when I'm talking about like the another like pillar of fitness, I'm saying it's that it's that community, it's uh-huh. that the people that you surround yourself with. We don't talk about this much, actually, in society. I don't know why, but my work in Tohoku has given me this really interesting point of view because I literally had front row seats to watch what do people do when everything is gone and they're starting from zero or even below zero. Um, They have to rebuild homes. They have to rebuild friendships. They have to rebuild connections, business partners, all of that. How do people connect and interact? And it, Mm. and I guess I was thinking it would be something really complex and like, I don't know, the government would, would manage it because somehow, you know, especially in Japan, society is so perfect. Like, Mm. Not perfect, but it's function. It's so smooth. Yeah. We don't see the holes. But how do we even get a society like that? Who's doing what? Yeah. And it was really interesting to see, you know, it was that just that farmer talking to that shop owner and then deciding, okay, we're going to need to act in this way. And then inviting the grandmother over to come and do this and then borrowing so-and-so's truck or car. And then that's literally how society works. If you break it down to its most basic components, it's just people. Inspiring yeah. other people and then taking action. So then, of course, you can get mass movement on that. But um, I forget where I was going with this rant. No, I think it's I actually know exactly <laughs> where you're going with this rant because you know uh, through all these experiences in Tohoku for you, you have written a book. And actually, I want you to tell us a little bit about the book. What's the title of the book? It's called Place to Grow: Eight Principles That Will Make You an Effective Leader in Social Impact. 
Say that three times real Boom. fast. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> Something about a social impact leader. Yeah, it's a eight principles that will make you a leader, an yeah. effective leader. So I, I extracted like eight key mindsets that I learned through the last 10 years that I think if you can get that mindset and, and I give stories of why I, I learned this, um, you'll become a very, a very effective leader at motivating people, bringing people together. Um, one of the hardest things to do is bring people together and then actually get them to act towards one goal, right? right and right. then even if you can do that, maintaining that is a whole other ball game. So leadership is something that we throw around a lot these days, like it's a, buzz, a buzzword. But the reality is, is that, you know, as a leader, you're, if you can make a space for everybody else to grow, then people will follow you. Mm. So that's what the book is about. But it's, it's very much about in the scene of social impact. Like how do you work between stakeholders, companies, nonprofits, community leaders? How do you lead volunteers, for example? Because yeah. everybody's got an ego and nonprofit world is no different. Mm. So how do you settle arguments when so-and-so wants that or when donors get pissed off, how do you manage that? So like PR, just everything really about getting people to move. Really nice. And with that, we're going to call it a wrap. Thank you very much for coming on the show. And uh, I look forward to hearing you calling Stuart O. I'm pulling out for Stuart O to come on the show next time. He would be fantastic. <laughs> I'm sure he'd be very excited to join you. So thank you for having me. So Tomalachi's Extreme Tomalachi and also Patrons now. Thank you for watching the show. Make sure to go over there and look on patreon.com slash the Tokyo show if you want to become an extreme tomodachi or just even a super tomodachi. This was the Tokyo Talks. <laughs>